almost 200 here, and we had about 50 or 60 from the Jewish community, and we impressed them. And, uh, you know, you all just did a fabulous job. Uh, people felt very warm and welcome and enjoyed being here. I loved the, um, the whole program. I think everybody, everybody did. But I've had a number of emails from uh, various uh, leaders in the Jewish community and APAC who were here the other night, and they just uh, just really do appreciate. They're so grateful and so thankful for everyone who is supportive of Israel. When you think in terms of the history of anti-Semitism and the continued and the rise of anti-Semitism today, that we see and to see groups and people, organizations that are willing to uh, stand up for Israel when they don't have to. It's sort of expected of those in the Jewish community, but when Christians do, uh, that's because they, they want to. They're not expected to. And that's another thing that happens, as Sabrina was talking the other night about um, going to policy conference, and I'll be going again to policy conference this year if anybody wants to go. Um, let me know. But uh, it's always interesting to go up on Capitol Hill with about twelve or 13,000 others and descend in mass upon uh, congressional and Senate leaders and to, you know, talk about specific issues. And they pay attention a little bit more when it's a Christian or a pastor that shows up because they know that for the for Jews to be there, that's expected. But for a pastor to show up, that represents a congregation, and that's that's something to pay attention to. So this is uh, it. Really does have an impact, and it really is significant. I want to remind everybody on September the seventh to sign up. I, I want to encourage you, if you are a parent or grandparent, that the child evangelism training is really a tremendous opportunity to give you a chance to think about how you could train your children at home and grandchildren at home and learn to be a better communicator. The, uh, I'll talk about this probably Thursday night, but last Friday night, uh, Pam and I had the opportunity, because Yorm had come in, we were invited over to uh, have a Shabbat dinner with the family, and the um, uh, uh, head of the family is a, is, is an older gentleman now. Actually, it turns out I was his paper boy when I was 14 years old. And uh, he was here the other night. But he was sharing with us some of the things that he did around the table in a Jewish home on Shabbat. Uh, it's a time that you turn off all the electronics, no TV, nothing nothing like that. It's a, really a good a time for the family to talk about things. And he shared, pulled some things out of the file that he had used in training his five sons and the discussions they would start around the table. And I thought, man, this was incredible. They were some of the best tools for teaching critical thinking skills that, uh, that I've seen. I thought, what a wonderful way to parent your children and to have discussions about these kinds of things around the table every night. Of course, the ones he pulled out that he shared with us were uh, from... Uh, from the late 70s when all of his boys were at least 16 or 17 or older. So they were uh, they were pretty knowledgeable about world affairs and things like that. But he had, he had words in Hebrew. He had words in English. I mean, it was just a great, great tool. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But we need to get into our study in Acts tonight. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful that we can come together this evening to fellowship around the teaching of your word, that we have the freedom to study your word, that we have this rich heritage that you have bequeathed to us through the uh, prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament who have recorded in their 
words overseen by you, your your eternal truth, and that we can have very uh, very good translations before us where we can read and study your word for ourselves. Father, we pray that you would uh, just uh, encourage us tonight as we study your word, as we're reminded about your faithful, uh, sovereign guidance over the birth and expansion of the early church, understanding the miraculous nature of Christianity and the universal church, and how you have worked and continue to work to expand Christianity despite obstacles, opposition, and despite those who would seek to shut us down, that there has always been a faithful witness to the truth of your word down through the centuries. Now, Father, we pray that we might continue that heritage of being faithful witnesses, just as our Lord commanded the disciples to be his witnesses in Judea, I mean, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you can see, we have a new graphic uh, for uh, Acts. There, uh, a couple of years ago, a lady came along who's a graphic artist. That's her trade and does wonderful work. And uh, she wanted, she'd been listening to uh, material in Dean Bible Ministries and that she uh, wanted to, uh, she said, I just don't have that much money, but I would love to do a lot of graphic work uh, for Dean Bible Ministries, if possible. And she's done uh, title slides like this for all of the series, and that's going to be part of the new the new website. And the other day I thought, well, these ought to be what the title slides I use for the beginning of these of these uh, uh, each of my series because they're just tremendous. Okay, in the last last week we're finishing up, our, and this week we're finishing up Paul's second missionary journey. We have followed him as he traveled uh, from Antioch across uh, Cilicia through the Cilician Gates to follow up on the initial churches in South Galatia, uh, Lystra, Iconium, Derby, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, and then God the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into Asia. This is the Roman province of Asia in the in the western part of what is now modern Turkey, and as you see the line on the on the map going north, they, uh, the scripture says they were prevented from going to Bithynia and Pontus as well as to Asia, and so they, circ- they circled around, ending up in Troas where they, uh, Paul had a vision, and in that vision he saw a man from Macedonia calling for him to come over. So they caught a ship, they went to uh, Macedonia, visited Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens and Corinth, which is where we are in our study in Acts chapter 18. We covered the first um, six or five verses last time getting into the study in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is located where the red dot is right here, uh, just across this the isthmus of Corinth, about 40, about 50 miles uh, just a little bit south of due west of Athens. The other circle here is for Centria, which we'll talk about in a minute. This is another port uh, where Paul leaves from as he heads on to Ephesus. His goal was to, uh, at the beginning of the journey, was to get to Ephesus, and what we find is he finally makes it at the end of the uh, second journey, but only to stay there for an extremely short time before he returns to Jerusalem, and then he will cycle back and spend over two years, maybe as much as two and a half years in Ephesus. This is the what the 19th chapter covers. Now, as we looked at the events last time, just to review us and remind us on those verses, after Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth, and there he found a man named uh, Aquila, who was from Pontus, going back a little bit to this map, Pontus, is this area north in northern Turkey along the southern coast of the uh, of the Black Sea and he, <clears throat> Pontus had I mean Aquila and his wife Priscilla had been in Rome and when Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome due to the fact that they had had riots in Rome uh, according to uh, his, historians at that time according to uh, then there were riots over a man named Crestos, and we uh, deduce from that that there must have been some disagreement, some division in the Jewish community over whether or not Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so uh, after some riots, a lot of uh, unsettled things going on in Rome, then 
uh, Claudius had his fill. There, there was always a strain, in, um, especially among the Roman aristocracy, a strain of anti-Semitism, and that uh, reared its ugly head, and he expelled the, the Jews from Rome in 49. That's a, cer- a date we're, we're certain of, so this is after that time, and we place the date of these events around 51 uh, A.D., and so he, um, uh, Aquila and Priscilla left, and they came to Corinth, where they uh, are, connect with the Apostle Paul. Like Paul, they are tent makers, workers in leather, and perhaps other textiles in making uh, in making tents. And so Paul, according to his standard uh, standard uh, strategy, goes into each community, and first he goes to the synagogue. It's his principle is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does he go to the Jew first? We're going to get into this before the end of this lesson. I touched on it last time, had some questions on it. I know it seems funny for a lot of people to think this through, but this is a transition period in history, a, a swing period. It's like a hinge in history, except the hinge lasts about 40 years between the cross which is the end of the law. We'll get into this a little more in detail. The cross, which is the end of the law, and the destruction of the temple. And during this period, there is still a focus on reaching the Jews with the gospel and an emphasis on that kingdom message that was proclaimed by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost and then again in in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 3, offering them the times of refreshing in terms for the coming of the millennial kingdom. Even though a judgment on Jerusalem had already been pronounced, even though Jesus had already prophesied in Luke chapter 21 the destruction of Jerusalem, that did not mean that once that had been fulfilled that the millennial kingdom could not potentially come if the Jewish people would follow the command of Deuteronomy 30, and that is to turn back corporately and as an, as an entire entity uh, to call upon the name of the Lord, using the terminology out of Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and following, to call upon the name of the Lord, to call upon Jesus as their Messiah, and then Jesus will come and rescue them. That's going to be a main uh, aspect that we study as we go through Romans 10 and Romans uh, Romans 11. So Paul goes to the synagogue uh, first and foremost, and he begins to uh, reason with them, dialogismos, which is a term for explaining the gospel, and he's doing it from the Old Testament. That's just about all the scriptures that we have in 51 A.D. James was written earlier, maybe as early as 43 or 44. Paul himself has written Galatians, that was written about two years before, but at this point of the New Testament uh, epistles, that's it. Gospels haven't been written yet. Uh, none of the other epistles have been written yet. Revelation and the epistles of John certainly haven't been written yet. They're not penned until after the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So there's really only two books that have been written. So what's he going to use for Scripture? He's using the Old Testament. He's going in. He's going to uh, passages in uh, uh, Numbers. He's going to passages in Deuteronomy. He's going to passages in the Psalms, passages in Isaiah, passages in Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel. Many of these passages you and I have worked our way through many times in the past, and if you're new, those are all available up on the Internet. So they, he comes, and he's reasoning with them in the Sabbath, and he's persuaded uh, both Jews and Greeks. So he gets a response, contrary to the response he got when he was in Athens. We've seen that Paul's response in many of these communities has been a hostile response after an initial welcoming in the synagogue. Then once they understand what he is saying, teaching that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah of the Old Testament, promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, then there's a reaction. Uh, he, this, this, because of this reaction, he's thrown in, he's beaten, whipped, thrown in prison, in jail, there in Philippi, uh, against the law, because he's a Roman citizen, no Roman citizen should be whipped. Uh, when that's found out, they immediately release him, and of course, they're fearful that he's gonna cause trouble because of that. Then he left Philippi and went to uh, Thessalonica, the, the antagonistic crowd of Jews follow him, 
and oppose him, but there are still many Jews that respond in Thessalonica. Then again, because of the opposition, a word has reached them that because Paul was a a Roman citizen, they're not going to force the attack on him. They force it on the converts there in Thessalonica. So again, he has to leave, Go to goes to Berea, problems, they continue to follow him. He goes to Athens, hardly any response at all, just a few people. So he's a little down and dejected and less confident. And as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he is weary and tired as he comes to... Um, as he comes to to uh, Corinth, and then he has again a reaction uh, from the people there. He's, persu- he's got a positive response now. Silas and Timothy then join him from Macedonia, and then we read in verse five, Paul's compelled by the Spirit. And I said last time this, uh, we don't know exactly how this took place, but this is during the interim period at the very beginning of the church age. When the revelatory gifts are, not only are the revelatory gifts operational, but this is an apostle, and the Lord Jesus Christ directs his, the apostles in ways that he did not direct any other Christian. This is not something that is normative in Christianity. This goes back to the principle I'm, I've been emphasizing for understanding Scripture, for a part of hermeneutics, is that Acts is a transitional book. Therefore, we have to understand that there are unique things happening during this period of history, during this early stage of the church age, that are not normal, that are not to be expected, that are unique to the founding of the church and unique in that era because apostles were on the ground. Now, we then read in verse 6 of the reaction, but when they opposed him and blasphemed, Blasphemy here refers to their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and his claims to be the Messiah. Uh, they sh- uh, he shook out his garments. This is a very uh, uh, Jewish thing to do, part of their culture, and it is a uh, physical symbol of the fact that he is uh, leaving them. He is shaking the, the dust off his garment, and he's leaving them, and he's basically saying, you're taking your own responsibility for this decision, and I'm moving on down the road. So he says, your blood be upon your own heads. And what he means by that is you're responsible now for your eternal destiny. You've rejected the truth, so blood here is a metaphor standing for life. Uh, remember the Old Testament November in uh, uh, Numbers talks about the blood, it, the life is in the blood. And so when he says your blood is on, be upon your own heads, he's saying you're taking uh, responsibility for your life and your eternal destiny. And he says I'm clean, meaning I am clear of all responsibility because I have made the issues clear. And from now on, I am going to the Gentiles. And as we've seen in other studies, this is one thing that really angered the Jewish audience because in, in uh, Second Temple Judaism at this time, in the first century, there was this idea that they were a spiritual elite, that simply because of their descent from Abraham, they were automatically guaranteed a destiny in heaven, and the Gentiles were not. Gentiles were not going to be there in, in some forms of rabbinical teaching at that time. And so uh, it angered them when uh, Paul would come along and say that, that he was taking this the gospel to the Gentiles and was expanding into the Gentile community. And so verse 7 we read that he left there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now, in these verses, there's two converts that are going to be mentioned. One is uh, Titius Justice, who's mentioned here, who is a Gentile uh, proselyte. He is not a full proselyte because he's simply referred to as one who worshipped God. He's a God worshiper. So as we've studied in the past, there were different levels of Gentile involvement in uh, the Jewish community, there's a the full proselyte 
was one who had taken on all responsibilities and all the mandates of the Mosaic Law, including uh, circumcision. Then there was a lesser form, which was a proselyte at the gate, and then there was a lesser form that was one who was a worshiper of God, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And so Justice is uh, a Gentile, a worshiper of God, and his house is next door to the synagogue. And we know from the location of the synagogue in in, um, in Corinth that this was a wealthy area, and so this was a rather large house because this then becomes the place where the new church in Corinth is going to meet, and they're going to gather there. So on uh, on Saturday, the Jews would gather at the synagogue, and on Sunday, the Christians would gather next door at the house of justice, and this must have been something that really irritated the Jewish uh, community because it was so close and right next to uh, their synagogue. And at this same time, the leader in the synagogue named Crispus, who's also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.14 as one who Paul uh, baptized, uh, Crispus, who is the ruler of the synagogue, he's the head of the synagogue, believes the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And we're told in 18.8 that he believed on the Lord. This is standard vocabulary in the scripture on how to be saved. How are you saved? I invite Jesus into your heart. No, that's not what the scripture says. People today have all kinds of non-biblical terminology. I don't know why it's so hard to understand what the Bible says to be saved. It doesn't mean commit your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus, make Christ part of your life, uh, invite him into your life. Uh, Romans 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, is a verse for fellowship, not for salvation. And the, again and again and again, you have just the simple phraseology, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe means to trust, to believe something to be true and to rely upon it. Very simple. And so Christmas believes on the Lord. And also all of his household, so his whole family, uh, trusts in Christ as their Savior, the one who died on the cross for their sins. And along with this, we read, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now, the first word hearing is a present active participle of the word akuo, meaning to hear. But it also implies in many contexts to listen to a command and to obey it. And the gospel is a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And so as a participle, it has a temporal uh, sense to it, so it should be translated to get a little more clarity. When they heard, when they were hearing the gospel, or as they were hearing the gospel, uh, they believed. As they were hearing the gospel, uh, they believed. It's an imperfect tense indicating this is con- this is continuous action. Now, uh, there's a couple of different ways that we used uh, would use an imperfect tense. One would be uh, the idea that we have in, in John chapter one verse one, when we read, "In the beginning was the Word." Was is an imperfect tense. There has the idea of continual action in past time, just a steady stream of uninterrupted action in past time. But we can we can also say uh, that uh, refer to a, a series of events that continue. They're broken up, but they continue in an uninterrupted fashion over over the pa- past time. Uh, for example, uh, if I were talking about when I was, uh, when I was a young boy and taking piano lessons, I would say I had, I practiced the piano every morning. I didn't practice continuously every day, but every morning I had to go in and play, uh, through my exercises and practice for, for 30 minutes every morning. And so it's that repeated, action that's continuous over a period of time. So the idea here is as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, dialoguing with the Jews and explaining the Old Testament passages, there was a continuous stream of people who were hearing it and responding to the uh, illumination of God the Holy Spirit and the call of the Word of God and were putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And again, we see that their response was, just like Christmas, 
to believe. Again, we see this same, same terminology, to believe in Jesus Christ. So the best translation here is to understand this to be uh, many of the Corinthians, that would be the Gentiles as opposed to the Jews, the, the Greeks there and the Romans, that when or after they heard, they believed. It's a third-person plural emphasizing that ongoing action. And what did they do after they believed? After they believed, they were baptized. Uh, they didn't wait over a period of time. I've covered this before in, in the gospel. We saw this with the uh, Ethiopian um, back in Acts chapter 7, that as soon as he understood the gospel from Philip, he said, well, what prevents me from being baptized when they came to water? It was something that was done almost immediately. And this is an important thing that uh, I want to discuss in terms of baptism. I'll hit it briefly here, but we'll come back to it as we get into Acts chapter 19. We have this event of a baptism occurring in A.D. 52. We have another event of baptism when we when Paul... Uh, meets these uh, disciples uh, of John the Baptist. There were 12 of them in uh, Acts 19.5. They're mentioned and identified. And they were familiar with the baptism of John the Baptist, but they were not familiar with being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They hadn't heard about Jesus. They hadn't heard about the crucifixion. They were, they, they were believers in an Old Testament sense in, a, in, in that they had responded to the gospel of John the Baptist, but they weren't believers as a member of the church. And so they are immediately uh, baptized. Now, there is a view about baptism that has been taught by uh, by a group known as hyper-dispensationalists. Now, as dispensationalists, and that term simply means that we believe that God administers his plan in history in different ways in different ages. There are different levels or degrees of revelation. What Abraham knew was not as much as what David knew. What David knew was not as much as what Paul knew. Uh, there's a progress in revelation down through the ages, and as God gives a new level of revelation, often there are new responsibilities and new requirements during a new era or a new age. The age prior to the cross we call the age of Israel. It began with the call of Abraham in approximately 2000 uh, B.C., and it ends at the cross. That's the age of Israel. The focal point is on Israel, but it's subdivided, that age is subdivided into what we call dispensations. A dispensation is a period of uh, demarcated by divine revelation as to how God is administering human history. And so we have one period of that administration we call the patriarchs from Abraham to Moses in preparation for bringing the Jewish nation out of Egypt in... Uh, approximately 1446 B.C., and at that time new revelation was given uh, with the Mosaic Law, new requirements, new obligations, and so that introduced the dispensation of the law. And the dispensation of the law began in 1446 with the giving of the Mosaic Law, and it ends at the cross. Then with the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the crucifixion, so notice there's a 50-day gap there that's not uh, the dispensation of the law. It's not the dispensation of the church. It's still the age of Israel, but it's a hinge period, a transition period, as we'll see. And when you get, after the day of Pentecost, a new era begins, new revelation, God the Holy Spirit comes to indwell each and every believer. There are There's a new revelation that begins to be given related to uh, the church age, and the church age extends until the rapture of the church uh, removes all uh, church age believers from the earth. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first and meet the Lord in the air. He doesn't come all the way to the ground. He just comes in the air. They'll rise to meet the Lord in the air. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. That's what ends the church age. 
lot of people think what ends the church, that uh, that also begins the tribulation, but it doesn't. The tribulation period is a seven-year period that's defined in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 27, 28, and 29 as a, as a period of seven years that begins when the uh, prince who is to come, who we identify as the future Antichrist, that when he signs a peace treaty with Israel, that starts the, the uh, timer, and it's a seven-year timer. And so what begins the time of Daniel's 70th week is that signing of the peace treaty, not the rapture. So once again, we see there's going to be a transition period. We don't know how long a transition period between the end of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation. Now, back in around 1915 or 1916, some of you know this book, a book called Dispensational Truth by Clarence Larkin. It's a big book with lots of uh, charts and diagrams. He was a draftsman, and he just loved drawing all these different charts and everything. And, and he has excellent information in there. It's a tremendous book and one of, one of the uh, most significant books on dispensationalism published in the 20th century. And Clarence Larkin said that if the rapture were to occur in his day, because the rapture is a signless event, nothing has to happen for the rapture to occur. No prophecy is required. The rapture can occur at any moment. That's why it's called the uh, imminent rapture can occur at any point in time. Well, Clarence Larkin said if the rapture occurred in his day, it would be at least 50 or 60 years before the tribulation could begin because there was no uh, Jewish, there's very little Jewish presence in the land. There was no uh, Jewish nation in the land. Uh, there was no temple built on the Temple Mount. Uh, none of the structures that that we see as being present in, in necessary to be present in Israel at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week were there. And he recognized that it would take uh, some years for all of these things to be put into place. Now, some hundred years later, we look back on the events of the 20th century and we see that, uh, that there's a vibrant Jewish nation. The population in Israel is about, uh, I think it's about... Uh, there are about five and a half million Jews and about another million or so uh, Arabs, but there's a, a huge Jewish presence in the land, almost as many Jews in the land as outside of the land. Uh, never in history since, uh, the, since the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 has there been as many Jews in the land as there are today. And so we see that the stage is being set. That doesn't mean the rapture is going to occur tomorrow. It just means that that more and more things are in place so that that transition period between the rapture and the beginning of Daniel's 70th week doesn't need to be quite as long. So it's going to be a probably a shorter period of time than what Clarence Larkin, uh, Clarence Larkin perceived. And so... We look at these dispensations, and there are certain dis- things that are distinct in each dispensation for, and related to uh, the covenants. And, and, for example, in the Old Testament, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the observance of the Sabbath. And the sign of the church is baptism, water baptism by immersion, and because it teaches a spiritual principle. It teaches a principle that that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this began, uh, this identification with Christ, baptism by the Spirit, began on the day of Pentecost. Now, there are some dispensationalists that came along. They're called hyper-dispensationalists. And they would say, well, the church really didn't begin on the day of Pentecost because there's still this Jewish thing going on. Uh, it began... Uh, it didn't begin until Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9. Others say it didn't begin until Paul began to take the gospel to the Gentiles in, um, and, and, and Acts, when Peter first took the gospel to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 or in Acts chapter 13 when Paul first went on the first missionary journey. And that's when the church began. Others, real hyper-dispensationalists, say that the church didn't begin until after the close of the book of Acts, when Paul began to truly uh, write about the um, uh, 
about the mystery doctrine of the church age during his first imprisonment when he wrote the prison epistles of Philippians, Colossians, uh, Ephesians, and Philemon. This is when he really begins to develop uh, distinctive church age doctrine. So hyper-dispensationalists say, well, baptism was only for that interim period. It was a, It was temporary, uh, and they'll also try to build an argument that it's like the sign gifts uh, of tongues, uh, knowledge, and prophecy, that those were supposed to be t- uh, just temporary. And so baptism was just temporary. Well, that's, that was their, uh, that was the way they taught, and that's based on their hermeneutic. But the fact is the church began on the day of Pentecost, and Paul continued to baptize both Jew and Gentile. He never treated baptism like it was something distinctive for uh, for the Jews or for Jewish converts. It might have a distinctive and significant impact uh, for uh, someone who's Jewish when they convert because uh, in, within the Jewish tradition, this really didn't develop till much later. Uh, within Jewish tradition, once a Jew became baptized, that was sort of the sign that they've cut themselves off from the Jewish community. And so in Orthodox households, they would have, they would hold a funeral. This person is now dead to us, kick them out, never, uh, never ever talk to them again. And I have known, uh, some Jews reared in Orthodox households for which that was true. They were completely, uh, cut out from their families and their families never, never spoke to them again. Uh, Michael Rydelnik's father treated him that way when he became a believer when he was a, uh, when he was a teenager and to his dying day, his father never, never spoke to him. Uh, again, his father died in a hospital in Israel. And Michael tells a somewhat poignant story about how, how God extended his grace to his father to the very last that as he was lying on his deathbed in a hospital room in, in Israel, uh, that um, uh, uh, he was in a room with, with two beds, so there was another patient in there, and somebody came in to visit the other patient uh, in the room and noticed the name on the, on, on the uh, patient, patient list on the door that his name was Rydelnik. So this person asked his father if he knew Michael Rydelnik and admitted that that was his son. And this person was also a Messianic Jew, gave his father the gospel. He rejected it one last time, sadly and unfortunately, and so he never responded to the gospel. And so that is a a sad story, but it just points out God extended his grace uh, to the very end. But God has a purpose for... Uh, for baptism that extends beyond just being a significant event for Jewish people. It was to teach a principle. It was to teach the principle that we're identified with Christ in his death, that's depicted by going under the water, and his burial, and then being risen to new life, coming out of the water. Uh, positional truth is a term that's used to describe this doctrine, and when, and that's an abstract doctrine. It's difficult for people to understand. So this gives a very concrete visual image. In fact, it was interesting at, at camp this summer. There was a, a young man at, at Camp Arete who was uh, 18 years old, so he was a he was an adult, and he was um, uh, he was staying there listening to my explanation. And afterwards, he said, you know, I had always been taught that baptism really wasn't important for for Christians and probably wasn't for today. But when you made that explanation, it was so clear that that's all it was, was a training aid, a visual aid for understanding something that's difficult to understand. I realized that that that, that was exactly right, and, and so I wanted to be baptized, and so David Roseland baptized him that day. And that was a, that was a stink. got a chance to baptize Travis uh, Franklin, uh, then as well. Uh, so that was, uh, that was distinct because that's what this is doing. It's just teaching this principle of positional truth. Now, some people have said that, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, it, it gives this idea that Paul really wished he hadn't baptized anybody. That's really ripping this out of context. The context is that, that the, the carnal Corinthians were dividing up over personalities. They were making issues out of who followed which pastor. 
Sound familiar? We still do that today, don't we? Some people follow Swindoll, some people follow MacArthur, some people follow uh, whoever it might be. Uh, I listen to Ryrie, I listen to Chafer, Schofield, whoever, Calvin, Luther. We divide up over personalities. That's what was going on in the in the Corinthian church, and the issue was Christ. And so they were dividing up over who got baptized by whom. And so Paul said, I'm glad that I am not can't be brought into that argument and that schism because I didn't baptize anyone except for uh, Crispus and Gaius, he mentions in verse 14, and Stephanus in verse 16. So he said, you can't pull me into this nasty little argument you've got because I'm not going to play that game. He's not saying that he rejected baptism. He's saying he's glad he didn't baptize more of them so that they couldn't use uh, use him in their uh, misguided, divisive arguments. Uh, in fact, at the same time that Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he has returned on his third missionary journey. He is in Ephesus, and about the same time he is writing this epistle and saying, I thank God that I baptized none of you to prove that he's not saying I shouldn't be baptizing anymore, which is how some people, what some people think that means. He baptizes these 12 disciples of the apostle John in Acts chapter 19. So either, either he's incredibly inconsistent and contradicts himself at every turn or this idea that 1 Corinthians 1.14 is somehow indicating that, that Paul is recognizing that baptism isn't significant anymore is a completely erroneous and fraudulent interpretation. In Acts 19, we read the, uh, uh, of the episode there when he con- meets these 12 individuals. He asks them if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed, and they say, well, we haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. We don't know that we got him. And so he said, well, into what baptism were you baptized? And they say, into John's. John's baptism was related to the command to repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So we know that these were Jews who were in the diaspora, but that they had not, uh, they had responded to John's command, but they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. And so Paul says in verse uh, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, but um, focusing on the one who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And so when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the important distinction. Because in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Jesus said, Go and teach all, uh, all the world uh, and baptize them and make disciples of all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's that in the name of identification with the triune God that distinguishes uh, this particular baptism. Now, back to what's going on in uh, verse 9. In verse 9 of chapter 18, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night. Paul has still got some anxieties going on about his ministry. He's still in weakness and trembling, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so Paul says uh, that the Lord appeared to him and told him, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. There are three promises made here. Uh, Number one is uh, don't... Uh, is in verse 10, is I am with you. God promises to Paul that he is with him, and in a similar sense, not the exact same sense, but in a similar sense, he's always with us. He, Jesus promised he will never leave us or forsake us, that no matter what the circumstances might be, and no matter how fearful things might appear, or chaotic things might appear, Jesus is always with us. He will always sustain us and strengthen us. Second thing, uh, and this is specific to Paul. We can't apply this aspect. He says, no one will attack you or hurt you. Now, that would not be applied to anybody else. We can't, uh, we can't extrapolate any principle from that. That is a promise to Paul in a particular situation in a particular time, that no matter what happens in Corinth, whatever opposition comes, God says, I'm going to protect you and no one will hurt you. And the third thing he promises is that he has many people in this city. In other words, God is saying there are going to be many people here who respond 
to the gospel message. And this was indeed the case. In contrast to Athens, where there were just a few who responded, there were so many that Paul stayed a year and a half in Corinth, according to verse 11, teaching the word of God among them. Now, as we go through this section, you'll see that there are several different words used for the communication of the word of God. And this word, didasco, is a basic word for instruction uh, and, and teaching. And so Paul is going through the Word of God, and what does that mean? That's the Old Testament. Here's the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Gentiles, the Apostle to the church, and what's he doing? He's teaching them the Old Testament. You know, I've known pastors, dispensational pastors, who unfortunately got derailed. This was common in the early part of the 20th century, and they spent almost their entire ministries, 30, 40, 50 years, teaching only the epistles, and usually only the, 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 the late epistles of the Apostle Paul. I know one particular pastor in Dallas who never got out of the epistles. He never taught an Old Testament book. He never taught the Gospels. He never taught Acts. He taught Romans several times and Ephesians and Colossians and uh, Philippians, but he didn't teach the whole counsel of God. And here's the Apostle Paul, and he's teaching the Old Testament scriptures because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't grasp a lot of the things that are going on in the New Testament. The Old Testament is our foundation for New Testament truth. And so in verse 11, he's, he's teaching, but this teaching uh, generates a reaction. And that reaction comes up as the Jews launch a united attack against Paul, and they're going to bring him uh, before the judgment seat in Corinth. And this is a picture in the background here. Uh, the wall has a sign on it that says the Bema Seat. This is a, a huge archaeological dig at Corinth. It's a fabulous place to visit, and this is where, um, where Paul appeared before uh, Gallio. Now, Gallio is the proconsul, uh, the Roman proconsul in uh, Corinth, and he has an elevated judgment seat that was about seven and a half feet off the ground, and this is located here on the south side of the Agora, or the open marketplace. Uh, Josephus, in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, identifies various uh, Jewish privileges that were given uh, under Roman law to the Jews uh, around the Roman Empire, and that included their right to observe certain ancestral customs, uh, to worship their own God, and to follow the uh, Mosaic law. And so what what is happening here is the Jews are basically coming and bringing a theological charge against Paul, that he's causing uh, disruption among the uh, among the Jewish community. And they're going to be, bring this before Gallio. Now, Gallio is a Roman uh, proconsul about whom we have a lot of information. His father was known as Seneca the Elder, who was born around 50 BC and died, uh, just a few years before this in, uh, AD 40. His, uh, younger brother was known as Seneca the Younger. He was born about the same time as Jesus in 4 BC, died in 65. He was a, he was famous because he was a uh, famous Stoic philosopher and also known as Seneca, uh, Seneca the Stoic and he was a tutor for Nero uh, when he was young. Uh, the family of, of Gallio was originally Spanish. Gallio was an, uh, an aristocrat. He was well educated and <clears throat> for these reasons he was set up, um, uh, to, to be the proconsul in Achaia. Uh, Seneca wrote of him that no one of mortals is so pleasant to one person as he is to all. He was known, he had tremendous tact, he had great people skills, and therefore he could handle an environment where there might be some, uh, some opposition. Uh, and so Gallio is the, is the proconsul, but Unfortunately, he also has an anti-Semitic strain, which uh, uh, which was typical of Roman aristocrats as well as his own family. His uh, younger brother, Seneca the Younger, was, uh, is quoted as describing the Jews as an accursed race, uh, and he believed, uh, and Cicero, 
the famous Roman orator held to the Jews as uh, people who held to barbaric superstitions. And so uh, Rome was known for their anti-Semitic attitudes. Now, Gallio wasn't proconsul for long, and so it's easy to date his time there around 51 to 52. Uh, he came down with a fever, some sort of disease. He was event, he had to give up his post, went back to Rome. Later, he was martyred or killed, executed under, uh, under a Nero. Well, here's a picture where you see one view of the Bema seat. If you go to the Bema seat and take, in this photograph, you see behind it the Acre Corinth. Acro means the high hill, like the Acropolis in, in Athens, and it was on top of the Acrocorinth. There was a fortress built there later, but this is where they had the temple uh, to Aphrodite. And so that gives you just a little bit of perspective around there. Now, the charge that the Jews are bringing against Paul is stated in verse 13, saying that this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, at this point... The text says that Paul was about to open his mouth. What has happened is they brought him before uh, Gallio, the proconsul, to make a, a judgment in this particular case. The reason Paul is about to open his mouth is because it was a standard that for uh, someone who was brought before the, the uh, proconsul, that they would swear an oath, just as we swear an oath on the Bible in our courtrooms, they would swear an oath on this uh, particular uh, column, and that uh, th- this is what they would do. So here's a picture of the column. Paul was about to swear an oath when uh, Gallio interrupted the proceedings and said to the Jews that if this were a matter of wrongdoing or criminal action, if he had violated Roman law, in other words, uh, or, uh, oh, Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But I'm not going to put up with you. But if this is a question of words and names of your own law, then solve your own problem. Look to it yourselves, for I don't want to be a judge of such matters. So he drove them away from the judgment seat. And then all the Gentiles look at this because of how he has handled this and uh, as an opportunity for them to beat up on the Jews and to express their uh, anti-Semitic attitudes towards the Jews. So all the Greeks who are standing around then took Sosthenes, who is the ruler of the synagogue. Crispus was the ruler before, but he oh, he defected. He became a Christian. So they had a new ruler, Sosthenes. But after this, Sosthenes defects. He's going to become a Christian. And when Paul writes the epistle to the to the Corinthians, he says, I'm writing it with Sosthenes. So Sosthenes became his his amanuensis became his his secretary who would write down uh, things for him. So Sosthenes later traveled with the Apostle Paul. So, But at this point, he's still the ruler of the synagogue. All the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. He's given his tacit approval to... Uh, beat up on the Jews and to riot against the Jews and express their frustrations and hostilities uh, towards the Jews. This is often uh, a way in which anti-Semitism expresses itself. We see the same kind of uh, thing going on today when people don't want to support Israel. They don't believe we should give foreign aid to Israel. They don't believe that we should stand up for Israel's right of self-defense and self-determination. And so by by not uh, helping our very close ally, then what that is is basically giving tacit approval to uh, Israel's enemies to attack them. And so we have to be very... Anti-Semitism can be, uh, come in very subtle forms. Then in verse 18, we see the conclusion of, um, of Paul's stay from 18 uh, to 23, which, uh, excuse me, 18... Uh, we see the summary of his of his journey there. So Paul remained a good while. He was there about a year and a half, and he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. So he's now going to head east to Syria, but on the way he's going to stop at um, at Ephesus. He is he's taking Priscilla and Aquila with him, and he does something that is somewhat unusual. He is going to take a vow. He's going to uh, take uh, what appears to be a Jewish vow, 
but it seems a little bit unusual. He leaves from the port of Centria, which is uh, located here with this circle, and they will head out uh, into the Aegean and across the Aegean, and their first stop will be Ephesus, and they'll leave uh, Aquila and Priscilla there, and he, he spends just a short amount of time uh, there uh, in Ephesus. But he takes this vow. Now, how are we to understand this this vow? Uh, verse 18 says at the end, uh, he, had, he had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, what this means is that sometime earlier, he had taken a vow, and at the conclusion of the period of the vow, uh, he would have his head shaved. He would have his head cut off. So during the period of the vow, he was letting his hair uh, grow long. Now, it's assumed, and I think correctly, that this is a Jewish vow. There are several ideas that are presented by scholars. One is that it's a Nazarite vow, and this, uh, a Nazarite vow would be uh, expressed, for example, it's defined in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. It was for a set period of time. A person who took the vow didn't cut their hair. They couldn't touch a, a dead body. They couldn't uh, touch anything related to the grape or the vine, couldn't have any wine. And during the period of the, the vow, they, they abstained from all of these things. And then at the end of the vow, uh, they would go to Jerusalem, and have their head shaved. But this is extremely expensive for someone who's living in the diaspora and not living in Jerusalem or in Judea because it's hard to get back to Jerusalem to to finish the vow. Uh, so Paul's a long way away. He's not getting his head cut, hair cut in, in Jerusalem, so maybe it's something else. Second option, it's that it's some form of Jewish vow of, of thanksgiving to God, for preserving him as a result of his promise in verse uh, verse 10. Um, the, uh, it could be some other form of Jewish vow, and it's likely, and I think this is the, the probably the correct interpretation here, is that this is a vow that was taken uh, by Paul, uh, but, but it's been modified uh, for the Jews in the diaspora so that they don't have to go back to Jerusalem to have their head shaved there and they can have it done within, at a local, uh, local synagogue or local center. And so there were certain things that were modified to make uh, the application of these laws a little easier, a little more accessible to Jews who didn't live, uh, live in Judea. But a uh, third option that some come up with is that uh, maybe this is a vow related to a Greek background, but that doesn't fit Paul at all. That's a silly notion. Uh, sometimes sailors would take a vow, and then they would shave their head when they came into port. And another option, this is how liberals think. It really didn't happen. Luke just put it in there for color. Uh, Got to throw that out. So you know that you know, li liberals come up with their funny ideas. Now, what we see here is part of this idea of transition. The question that people have is, why is Paul taking a vow? Doesn't he know it's the church age? Doesn't he know that the law is over with? Sure he does. He's the one who's teaching this. He's the one who emphasized these things at the Jerusalem Council. Paul understands these things, but Paul is still Jewish. The Mosaic Law is part of his cultural heritage, uh, it is uh, the, the Mosaic Law gives him a framework for being able to express a vow of praise and thanksgiving uh, to God. And uh, so he is uh, applying that not because it sets him apart as something special, not because it's a special form of um, uh, for sanctification or salvation, but because it's a way he can, in terms of his culture and background, express his gratitude to God uh, for what has what has taken place. This is part of what I've talked about in terms of the transitional nature in Acts. So let's just look at a few things related to understanding this whole idea and this whole doctrine of transition. Now, why is this important? First of all, this is important because it helps you understand how to read the book of Acts, how to understand some of these things that are going on that have 
and a, a, a very strong Jewish flavor and background to them, and yet they have to do with the church age. How do we how do we put these things together? Uh, on the one hand, Paul says, in, as I pointed out a few a few months ago, and we studied this, Paul says that that he he says that anyone who uh, who, who circumcises uh, their their male children because of the law are completely wrong in Galatians chapter five, and then at the same time he writes that he has Timothy circumcised. Well, it's because of two different reasons. The reason he he makes the statement he does in Galatians five is because in Galatia they're being taught that this has a spiritual significance, significance both for justification and for sanctification, and he rejects that. But with Timothy, he's not bringing any kind of spiritual significance to it. He just knows that, that, that Timothy has a reputation. People in the Jewish community know that he's Jewish, that his mother was Jewish, his father was Gentile. And if he is going to have any kind of a hearing in the Jewish community, then he needs to be circumcised because of the way they, the, the Jews separated themselves from Gentiles. And so he's doing this as a matter of of convenience, as we'll see, being able to open doors uh, for the gospel. It has no spiritual significance whatsoever. So the difference was wh- whether or not it was being done for a, for a spiritual reason. Now, the first point here is that we're in a transition. What does transition mean? Transition means that in some senses, that's a plural word I'm using, in some senses, not every sense, but in some senses, there's an overlap of features. As you go from one dispensation to the next, something change, things change. Some things that have been normative in the age of Israel are going to end. Some things that will be normative in the church age will begin. Some things are going to take place during that, that uh, transitional period that are temporary, like the sign gifts. We know what's temporary because they're specifically stated to be temporary, that, that knowledge and prophecy will be abolished and tongues will cease. It's specifically revealed what those temporary features would be in making that transition from one dispensation uh, to another. So there's some things that overlap, and some features of one dispensation continue for a short time into the subsequent dispensation because it takes time for the new revelation to be revealed or disclosed and then disseminated in the new dispensation. Think about it. No Twitter, no Facebook, no TV, no cell phones, no email, it takes time for the for for all the information to get out number 1 but god didn't dump everything about the church age on the apostles on the day of pentecost on the day of pentecost they hardly know what's up you get to acts 15 which is several years later that's uh that's about almost uh 10 years later before the um uh, before the, the 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 disciples figure out the relationship of the Mosaic Law to the spiritual life in the Church Age, up to up to the time of the, um, of the of the Jerusalem Council, they weren't clear on it. Just because they're apostles doesn't mean wow, wham bam, they knew it all instantly. They're having to figure it out. There's the Holy Spirit is giving them new information gradually over this over this time period. So that's what we mean by uh, transition. Let me just look at the second point. We'll come back and review these next time. But the second point, this does not mean that an absolute break between the two dispensations doesn't occur. There's a clear break. When Christ died on the cross for our sins, at that point we quit looking forward to a future fulfillment of the promise and we look back to its completed uh, nature on the cross. Salvation is different. It is specific after uh, that Passover that salvation was in Jesus only and his death on the cross. So there's clear there's an absolute break. But there are transition periods. Let me listen to these. Fifty days uh, before Pentecost, when the church begins... 
50 days before, that's almost two months. That's seven weeks in one day. That's why it's Pente is 50. It's seven weeks and one day after Passover. Christ died on the cross, and he's the end of the law. What's the rule of thumb between, if Christ is the end of the law, what's the standard between the death on the cross and the day of Pentecost? Holy Spirit comes, and he doesn't bring a New Testament. What do you do? The law ended. What does that mean? You're, you're, in, a, you're in a whole new era. Things have changed, and, and God doesn't give you all that information except over a 30-year period of time. Think about this. From, the, from Passover in A.D. 33, we know salvation was no longer future, but it's a past-completed action. But how many people knew that? Word didn't travel that fast. What if you're an Old Testament saint, you're living in a Jewish community in Alexandria or in Babylon or Rome, and you've been believing the promises of the Old Testament, like Anna or Simeon at the beginning of the Gospel of uh, the Gospel of Luke, and and all of a sudden um, it's now about AD 35. Somebody is just coming to the dock who's heard the gospel, and you die of a heart attack. Are you a member of the Church Age, the Age of Israel? You don't have the Holy Spirit. You're like those those disciples of John the Baptist. You haven't heard about Jesus yet. So you're, even though in terms of the fact that it's now 35, two years after the cross, it's technically the church age, you're still just an Old Testament believer. Hmm, interesting. After the cross, the Holy Spirit doesn't descend for another 50 days, and initially it's only to the disciples and Jewish believers. It's not to Gentiles until you get to Acts chapter 10. Now think about this. The the, uh, uh, Holy Spirit comes only upon the disciples and Jewish believers and then incrementally to other groups. In AD 33, he comes to the Jews on, on the day of Pentecost. It's two years plus before he comes to the Samaritan believers. When Peter and John... Uh, lay their hands on the Samaritan believers. It's another five or six years before the Gentiles come in, and 40 to 41 with Cornelius. This is some seven or eight years after the cross before the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit. What what happens in between? And then the Old Testament saints, like like these disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 18, don't get the, the Holy Spirit until A.D. 51 almost 20 years after the cross. See, that's what I mean. It's a transition zone. They're still functioning under the revelation given by John the Baptist. There were other Jews who were just functioning under the information given to Rome because there hasn't been a dissemination of the New Testament truth yet. It's a transition period. That's not something we think about. We think, well, just it changed, and everybody knew it. But they didn't. Now, I've got five more points on this, so we'll come back and go over this again uh, next time because it's important to understand these things so we understand how to read Acts. Father, thank you for this time studying your word this evening and reflecting upon your grace and knowing that it's God the Holy Spirit who watches over, protects, and expands the church. And he's working today just as he did back in the first century. may not be in the exact same way. We don't have the physical, visible manifestations like we did in the infancy of the church. But nevertheless, behind the scenes, God the Holy Spirit is working, and we get the wonderful privilege, if we're being obedient, walking by the Spirit, to be used by the Spirit to bring other people to Christ and to exercise our witness to those around us. Father, challenge us with the opportunities we have to be a faithful witness to Christ every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.